J. Clifton Slater, and I write military adventure, both future and ancient. And you're listening to Dead Hand Radio. Welcome to Dead Hand Radio, Jim. Thank you. I'm really interested to hear you know, what led you to writing and stuff like that. What part of the country did you grow up in? My father was uh, in the Air Force. So my whole life, we moved. Um, and then I went in the Marine Corps. And of course, we moved. I moved there. I actually settled in Baltimore and started going to night school. Finished my, uh, got my, uh, my college degree in uh, 1987. I was a little older than most of my professors and all of my TAs for sure. And uh, then I went into business and, and I ended up working in radio sales and radio management for uh, a lot of years. About five years ago, six years ago, I changed jobs and I had my nights and weekends free all of a sudden after, you know, 30 years. And my wife, I was driving my wife crazy. She's like, what are you, what are you doing? You're just hanging around the house on nights and weekends. I'm not used to you being here. I said, I, I don't know what to do with myself. I've never had a job when I had nights and weekends off. Because, you know, when you're a sales manager, you're always on call for your salespeople and for your clients. When she said, you always want to write a book, write a book. So I started researching um, what I wanted to write. And I thought, I love, always love science, but I always love science fiction. So I wrote a, a book about a, um, the oldest uh, uh, ensign in the Naval Flight School in the Galactic Council realm. And uh, the book sold pretty good on Amazon. So I took the money and I, I used that to put new covers on the books and started writing. And I started a Roman Legion series. And then I, uh, so it, at some point, I looked at how much money I was making selling books. And I looked at how much I was enjoying working for myself and not having to leave the house and go to an office. I just dove all in for writing. And that's why I ended up here today with 22 books. Um, Let me make sure I understand this correctly. You only started writing five or six years ago? Yeah, five years ago. That's an incredible body of work for, for a five or six year career. Well, my whole, my whole life, I've been a workaholic. I've, I've been the guy that was first in the office and last to leave at night. Um, and I still do that. I still, I'm in my office you know, first thing in the morning, usually by 6.37 in the morning. Um, I do a workout in the morning. I like martial arts. Um, so I get my morning workout in. I grab a shower and I'm, I'm at work by seven by 6.37. And I usually knock off around 5.36 at night. So if you're putting that kind of time into any endeavor, you're going to be producing. Yeah, that... that uh, you know, I talked to some people that it takes them five, six years to write their first novel, you know, <laughs> and uh, you knocked out your first novel and then 22 after that in the first five years of your career. Well, I, I, there was a little before that, I started making notes and notebooks about story ideas. Um, my first story, I, I, I'm looking for an idea. It's like most people go, where do you get your ideas from? Well, you're at, once you start, once you realize what a story is and where it goes and how to tell it, stories are everywhere. Um, when I started, actually it was Forbes magazine had an article on a mineral called eurybium. Eurybium is used to coat fiber optic cables. Um, a bare fiber optic cable will leak uh, information leaks light as the light, and they have to have very close uh, boosters, repeaters to keep the light energy strong to go to the next section of fiber optic cable. Well, if they coat it with eurybium, it actually helps hold the uh, light and information inside the fiber optic cable. Um, so, but this is the 43rd most abundant mineral on Earth's crust, so it's not rare here. And I thought, what if it was rare on the other side of the galaxy? And that's where I started. That's where all of the science fiction writing started with that one idea of supposed Eurybium was rare. 
And so that was your first novel? That was, yeah, that was the seed for my first novel. But what happened, I wrote, I have notebooks. I think I have 2,500 pages of type pages of, of people, character studies, places, ideas, things, um, objects, uh, engines, space, the space, how, you know, how your engine would work in your spaceships, all of that, but no story. So I've got a lot of background before I started writing that first story that I had just in my spare time written over the years. I think some writers refer to that as world building, where you just define all the details of the universe that your characters and your story lives in. And then you build from that and you can always refer back to that, but that's basically your, your groundwork to build your stories on. Is that what you're talking about? That's, that's what it was. I didn't, I wouldn't, I didn't know it was that. And it wasn't that organized for world building because when I started the books, I kept it very uh, tight. Um, in other words, there's no real world building in the books as it starts, but as you get, there's a four book series it turned out to be. As you go through the books, you learn more and more about the world. It's revealed to you as you go through it. And it's called Galactic Council Realm is the series uh, with my uh, my character. I, I named him, um, his call sign was J-Pop because his, um, because when he was in uh, medical, medical school, when he was in, um, flight school, sorry, my phone rang. When he was in flight school, uh, he was older than everybody else. So the, uh, they started, they said, hey, Pop, hand me this. Hey, Pop, hand me that. And they ended up being called J-Pop. So I wanted a macho call sign for my main character. And he ended up being, yeah, not not macho name at all. <laughs> yeah, well, I, uh, you know, th this may or may not make it into the final edition of this uh episode but uh supposedly macho is kind of out these days so that's probably not a bad thing that's true that's that's uh that's an interesting but, but if you write military adventure the 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 um the bravado the um the hard charging is is part of the you know part of what you do. I mean, if your character's not doesn't have that um, that ability to, to stand up to the bad guys and doesn't have a little bit of an ego to push them through bad situations, um, you, you're kind of not writing in the genre, you know. Yeah, that's true. That makes a lot of sense. Um, so your 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 first novel and then three subsequent novels within that same universe. Uh, was all science fiction based and then you also went on to do a 22 book series on ancient rome um no the roman series is 13 books oh okay okay yeah, the roman series is 13 books um and there's nine only sorry, 13 the, books right yeah only 13 <laughs> books in roman <laughs> <Just kidding>. <laughs> <laughs> which which are which are hard because of the I do a lot of technology you know uh, making steel making bricks um what was your for instance your your um water mill we think of a water mill as that stand up you know the 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 big wheel you know the water turns it and it's upright uh, not horizontal it's it's vertical well the first water mills were not vertical because if you think about it, that has that's complicated gearing that comes off the wheel that has to go down and then turn down under your grindstone. So the original water wheel was actually flat in the water so that it turned, rod came straight up and, and it turned the wheel mm -hmm. from underneath. So I was so there's a lot of that sort of thing in the books as well. Uh, well, so why why such a, a vast difference in the type of writing or the genres that you're writing it's, in? It's what I like. I love history and I love science. Um, so to satisfy both of me, I have to write in both. So I, I say to people, I'm, 
I write military adventure, both future and ancient. And that's, um, and that's really for me, because when you write books, you spend so much time with it. So it's funny. I was telling somebody the other day, when you're writing a book, it's almost like you're putting yourself into a psychotic state because you're, you're taking yourself out of this world. Your brain is focusing on whatever world you're working in. The characters are talking to you. So if you, somebody's talking to you, you go, wait a minute, then you need psychiatric help because not only are your characters talking to each other, you're typing what they're saying. You're reporting what they're saying for the book. And, and that's clinically insane. So, You know, I, I have heard other writers say that their characters do talk to them. And uh, some, some writers take a lot of flack for that. But, hey, if that's your reality, then... You know, and, and it seems to be working well for you. I mean, for, for somebody to produce that um, number of books. And, um, and yeah, it's just, it's a good formula for you, it seems. It's, it seems to be working. I mean, I say, Andrew, I, I'm a slow writer. I am not a fast writer. I, um, I work really hard on making sure that every paragraph is good. My fingers don't work that fast. And I'm a bad speller. I spend a lot of time going back, uh, checking my spelling. Um, it, so it's not like some people that are really good with spelling and just can, you know, type fast and go for it. I, I work really hard, but I, really, I work really long hours. And that's, uh, that's the benefit. In my case, I have the time and I'm willing to do the grind. That's very important for people to realize that to, to do uh, an immense amount of work you have to put in an immense amount of time because it doesn't just happen overnight magically. Um, that's something, that's a theme that I've actually uh, talked with on occasion um, throughout this experience of podcasting with several of, of the guests is that, you know, if, if, if you're doing anything that you want to be good at, you have to put in the time to get good at doing it. Uh, and if you want to do a, if you want to produce work on a regular basis, you have to put in the time. There's just no way of getting around it. You could have a talent and be creative and have ideas coming out your ears, but unless you sit down or, you know, and, and it goes across the gamut of any kind of career, unless you actually put forth the work to get good at what you're doing, and continuously produce that quality and volume of work, it's not going to happen. Nobody's going to do it for you, right? Yeah. Well, look at how, how much time do you spend podcasting? How much time do you spend interviewing people? Well, yeah, exactly. That's, uh, you know, and interviewing, I might talk to somebody for an hour or two hours, but that's, that does not, illustrate the scope of work that I put into each episode by any means. Exactly. Exactly. I really want to get into the the details of your science fiction writing, but I still have some more questions about your background, if that's cool. Absolutely. So you as a kind of a late bloomer in your writing career, uh, you obviously had to have had some kind of influence or inspiration to do that kind of thing. Do you, can you pinpoint how early on you realized that you were fascinated by science fiction? I, I can, I can tell you when I, I, science fiction, as soon as I started reading, I became, I just, that was all what I read for a long time, the science fiction, you know, all the, uh, all the science fiction greats. And I also read the history, historical guys and fantasy too. I think a lot of kids, a lot of young boys at least, start out reading fantasy because it's escapism, you know, the heroes, the heroes' journeys, and all that. Um, I have part of the reason I talked about earlier about my one of my issues is I'm a bad speller, and the more creative, uh, creative I'm being, the worse my spelling. So it's it's pretty ugly. Um, I had a teacher, and I don't know what grade it was, second, third grade, and we had to write a story. I wrote a story, 
And he comes and he's given out everybody's their classes, you know, their papers back with the grades on it. And mine's got a C minus on it and is full of red marks for spelling, grammar, just atrociously red. But it was a C, it was a C I passed. And he drops it on my desk and he says, it's hard to make a living as a Pulp Fiction writer. And he walks away from my desk. Andrew, I didn't know what a Pulp Fiction writer was. I didn't. He's, and for years, it didn't occur. It, I, couldn't put, I couldn't put a thought to what he said, but what he said stuck in my head. And then years later, I realized that, oh, he, he meant I wrote a good story. And that stuck with me for a lot of years. Of course, you know, when you're when you're when you go to the Marine Corps and, and you, you go into combat and you come back and, and you get, you know, you get married and you kids, you start your life and you're moving forward. Writing is not something that most people do sit down and go, oh, yeah, I think I'll just uh, start writing books. So I had to be older. And like I said, I had to be in a situation where uh my wife said, you know, hey, find something to do. Write the book you've always wanted to write. So that's that's how I ended up there. But yeah, but it came from Mr. Smith in the third or fourth grade. That uh, third or fourth grade, was it writing or English teacher? I think it was, yeah. It was an English. It's hard to remember the classes back then. But, but yeah, I just remember his name. And I remember that saying. And, and, I, and again, he walks away from my dad. And I'm like, what is a... Pulp Fiction writer. I had no clue what that meant. Well, but the um, the authors that you were reading, um, you know, prior to that class probably contributed to your creative writing ability to be able to produce that kind of a story. I've always been a reader, but I've never really been a writer. Again, before Bill Gates came out with Spellcheck, I could not write anything that was legible to anybody. So being that you were always a reader, somebody who consumed books, and this was throughout your adult life as well? Yes, at one point, um, we had an empty room in the in the house. We just closed, you know, you, you store stuff in there, you close the door, you don't go in there. And I would take, finish a paperback and put it in, again, before the days of the e-readers, which are really great nowadays. Um, my wife hadn't been in a room for six, eight months. She walks in the room and she's, she calls me in and there's, cause there's stacks of paperback around the room. <laughs> she, said, she said, you gotta go give those to Goodwill cause I want this room cut off. There's so many paperbacks I had bought. So I was a, a big consumer of, of books of, of all kinds, of all nature. I've always, you know, science books, history books, adventure, just the whole gambit of uh, just, um, just fun to read. You know, I just love being, I love soaking into a character and reading the story and seeing how somebody handled the situation and the language they used. What is it about science fiction that captivates you? And I, I understand that you're also a, a historical fiction or a speculative fiction fan, but uh, what is it about science fiction that captivates you? Well, it, it's, it's the nugget of, and I have, I have three rules for my writing and it's, it's, it has to be science before it's fiction. It has to be history before it's story. And it must have choreography. So those are those are my three rules. So so for me, science, any science discussion is an ability is is an opportunity for my brain to leapfrog from that from what is to what is a possibility. And and that's and that's what happens. Um, let me let me give an example. Um, my series uh, call sign uh, warlock. My character is a was an injured um, corridor assault specialist. She was a, a Marine that specialized. She was a team leader, actually. It specialized when the Marines got bogged down in the spaceship and they couldn't get the bad guys out of the corridor. Her team would go in and clear the corridor. And uh, that was fun to write. But then she gets injured. And... Um, but her, her optic nerve gets radiated. And, and the reason her optic nerve had to be radiated was 
I wanted to put a sensor in her eye. I wanted to replace her eye, human eye, with a bionic eye. And then I had to go research the eye and research sensors and what sensor I wanted in the eye. And the one thing that kept coming up for every sensor you talk about is a processor. You know, you can have um, a scanner that scans something, but in the back end of it, you've got to have a processor that can handle the, um, the knowledge or the, the, the electrons and the input that's coming in because something has to process it and make it knowledgeable. I'm sorry, make it readable, you know? Yes. So, so I gave her um, a, a mutated uh, optic nerve. And then I said, all right, so then, but her brain can't, may not be able to handle all of the different input she has coming through that eye. So in the books, it rolls through slowly. She learns um, different stuff with different things. <clears throat> Give me an examples of this one, two, three, four, five, six different powers, sensors in her eye. And one is the infrared. Everybody knows infrared. That's your heat signature. Your, you know, the scanner can read. You can buy uh, infrared goggles that you can read heat signatures. Um, you can use it for uh, scopes. You can get them for a lot of stuff, but it gives you the heat signature. Then I did her the ultraviolet. Ultraviolet was interesting because ultraviolet has to have a light coming from the source. In other words, you shine a black light on something to make things irradiate under the black light. And um, at one point I've got her in a restaurant and she pulls her patch off and she uses her ultraviolet on a dirty dishes and, you know, saliva. So she gets grossed out in the restaurant because of the uh, time. But those two, the infrared and the ultraviolet, are things that a lot of people know about. Um, but they work. The other thing I gave her, I gave her a color spectrum in the eye. The color spectrum is weird because you realize without the ability to see gray uh, and black and white, if you just have color, there are no, there are no defining shapes and color. All you see is a splash of color with um, soft outlines around it. So it would be kind of like looking through water. You would see color, but you wouldn't see defined outlines. And I just thought that was interesting when I was doing that. So you had to do quite a bit of research into existing technology to be able to write about it knowledgeable from a, a point of knowledge, right? Exactly. A lot of research on each of the items that's, uh, that, that's in her eye. Uh, another thing in her eye was um, I, I gave her, um, she can visualize sound waves. So she, again, you go to your hearing, you, you're used to hearing, but if you suddenly started hearing through your eye, because you could see, and especially if the, there was a low range and it was below the human hearing, then you would have to figure out what is that? I'm, I'm, sensing, a, I'm sensing something, but I don't know what it is. Well, guess what? It's a sound below your normal hearing. That's um, interesting. Can you describe what, what she experienced when she was seeing a, a sound um, wave? Moth wings, when um, a moth, if you put a microphone, very, very, very special microphone near a bat, they send out not only sounds, but they send out sounds that are very low range. Uh, worms do as well. Uh, a moth's wings together, you can hear, because you hear a moth flying around, that clack, 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 the knot. That's his wings slammed together. What you can hear is any noise, any that he's making. Um, whales do a lot of that low range that you can't hear unless it's magnified or brought up to slow down so you can hear it. So what does that look like, seeing the sound waves coming off of that? So you, you can't pick it up audibly, but she can see it with her bionic see, vision. A, what does it look like? Yeah, so it would travel the optic nerve to the brain, and then the brain would have to sort out what kind of information it is. Once the brain, once the brain figures out, oh, it's a sound I'm hearing, she does that. She's outside at one point uh, and she hears all this noise and she doesn't know what it is. But, and it's, um, I think, a squirrel 
make some noise that are low range, below human hearing. So a lot of animals and bugs make a low range that we can't hear. Um, dogs can hear part of it. That's why you'll see a dog a lot of times will suddenly look around and you'll go, what is that dog hearing? Well, they've got a really good range, but even not that low. You get that low range, it's fascinating to me. So I, I got to give her that sensor, then I got to have her confused by different sounds that her normal ears couldn't hear. What I was thinking was that she would see like the sound waves as like little ripples in, in through the air, but it's actually being translated in her brain as a sound. So she's really hearing it, but it's coming through her eye, right? She's seeing the how, yes. So oh, that's cool. If you think of any input, your brain, if you hear a new sound that you've never heard before, your brain has to stop and you have to associate it with something for you to understand what you're hearing. Same thing if you see something you've never seen before, you have to associate it. Your brain does all this calculations of, well, what is it? What does it go? What does it look like? Is it something I've seen before? Is it something new? How do I describe it? I mean, all the senses kind of roll together on that. So yes, yeah, so in a way she sees the sounds, but it's not like she's looking at a graph. In her head, it's picking up the vibrations of the sound and translating. The, the next sensor in the head is actually a scattered bioimaging, uh, which is medical bioimaging. If you hold your hand up with your fingers closed to a flashlight, you can see the uh, red between your fingers. Yes. That's scattered light. It's not any kind of shape that you can see with your naked eye. Yet a bioimaging scanner, if it scanned that, can take the pieces of information, put it together and create an actual image from it. So in that case, if you had that in a metabonic eye, you'd be able to read blood flow in somebody's just below their skin. Yeah. And if you did that, and part of these, all, all these come down to one thing for her. So she got the bioimaging. Then she has a Heller's organ. The Heller organ fascinates me. It's actually what ticks have. Ticks have a Heller's organ, and they do is they sense carbon dioxide, and they sense ammonia and sweat. Carbon dioxide you exhale, and ammonia from your sweat. When they sense that in the woods, when you're walking through the woods, you're putting off carbon dioxide and the ammonia. All the ticks around you, turn and crawl on branches towards you so that eventually as you're going through the forest you're going to get a tick on you because they're all moved so many of them are moving towards you so i i just that is the one organ that i gave her but when she combines them she combines the heart rate from uh the bioimaging she visions she hears the panting of somebody she looks at their blood pressure pressure she senses the sweat um, from the ammonia and the carbon dioxide. All of that makes her a human polygraph. She can, she can talk to somebody and judge all of that. Now, what's fun writing when you're writing that sort of thing is you have the ability to say, okay, what does she sense and what does it mean? So a lot of what does she sense? What does it mean? What are the people saying? They're lying to her. She knows. How does she know? And that's the fun part about writing a character like that. And that's one of the reasons I love science fiction. That could also be quite a personal conflict for her if she's trying to have personal relationships with other people. Yes. yes. <laughs> that, do you write you about can, that too? Yeah, she has she has some issues there. But she has she actually it's the interacting with different stuff. Um, and also remember all of these senses, these one, two, three, four, five, six senses, sensors she has in this eye are feeding information to her, to her human brain. So how much can she process? Um, at times she, sometimes she passes out. She has physical reactions to, um, all this input coming in. Um, but still she manages to fight through that and be the hero. So Very she's. She's tough. She's a tough, she's a tough one. <laughs> well, it certainly sounds like, uh, you know, you, you have to do a lot of research uh, and then craft the story around the technology that you more or less invented. I mean, you combining different technologies into one um, is 
in a way, I guess innovation, you didn't really invent it. You innovated and, and combined multiple technologies. And those are existing technologies today, right? Yes, absolutely. All of them. And, and it's, well, maybe obviously Heller's organ is a natural occurring thing in ticks. But somebody asked me, did you make her a tick? I mean, a tick? I said, no, oh, it's the organ. Give me a break. Yeah, that's the, that's the cool part about science fiction is that you can take existing technology and, and project forward 10, 20, 30 years or 100 years. What's that technology going to look like that far down, uh, you know, out into the future? And then well, build that has, into your story. But that also comes down to if you're dealing with humans, and I don't, I do have some alien plants in my thing, but and some some aliens, but they're not main characters. The aliens are almost a side thing. Here's what it comes down to for me. When I look at the modern technology and then I expand it into the future, and I say, this is what it could do. It's still limited by the human experience, what people will do with it, how they will interact with each other. And then you take the same thing and you go back to ancient history of the same thing. If you take away, you strip away the technology, you give them rudimentary basic stuff, you take away cell phones, take away communications, you still have people interacting with each other. So that's really the core of what makes a book is the interaction of the people, whether they're wearing leather and armor and swinging a gladius with a shield, or if they're running around with a bionic eye in their head trying to solve mysteries. So, well, as I um, pointed out to you in, you know, in the introduction when you and I first started to talk um, about you coming on this podcast, um, the, the podcast itself is centered on the Cold War era. So from 1947 until the early 90s, 91, basically, is that, yes. that that whole time frame for me is an area of intense fascination. We we were living we were living in Florida when the Cuban Missile Crisis took place, and we were. Seriously, my mother had packed clothes um, because we didn't know if the Cubans were going to launch missiles at Florida. Um, so we were ready to jump in the car and, and flee. So we lived for the whole the whole time the Cuban Missile Crisis was going on. We were on edge. We didn't go to school. We stayed home. My mother kept us home, and and we were waiting for. The sirens to go off to say, "Hey, there's missiles coming!" To jump in the car and leave. Now that whole incident uh, took place over the period of about two weeks from from start to finish, and it was pretty well uh, covered in the news. Oh, absolutely! So I'm yeah, sure. I mean, at I, first, I'm, go ahead. No, I was going to say at first. She wasn't that upset because it was like, now oh, they did this. But as it, as it built up, my father being in the Air Force, he was he started going on. He was started being on call more and more. So it just ratcheted up to the point where, you know, my mother was like, OK, we got clothes packed, go bags. We're going to jump in a car. We're going to get out of here. You know, if, if it goes bad in her head, they were going to, you know, the Russians were going to come over and invade the uh, invade Florida. Oh, it was it was fascinating time to be that close to Cuba. Yeah, I bet I bet it was scary for you as a little guy. What you were in your early teens, or were you younger than that? What's that that was sixty three. Was sixty three. Six. I was sixty three. Yeah. So I was twelve, thirteen during that time. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I remember when I was a thirteen year old kid. Um, you know, not a lot scared me. And I didn't really think about world events at that time. But when my parents said something that was alarming, that's what I fed off of. And I'm sure the same was true for you. Oh, absolutely. Especially the military father, um, you know, because you're, 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 you know, he's coming home at night and he's going, well, it's, 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 it's getting rough. We're going to be on call because, uh, you know, and he's talking about, insider information coming out of, you know, what they, what the military guys knew, not so much what the reporters knew. So that was, uh, 
that was a fascinating time, the Cuban Missile Crisis. I mean, you know, we're not we're not allowing Russia to put missiles that close to the American, you know, American coastline. How much impact do you think that had on your decision to go into the military yourself when oh, you when you were old enough? A lot. <laughs> I disappointed my father. He looked at me. And I joined the Marine Corps. He was in the Air Force. He said, "Where did I go wrong?" <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, I was in the Air Force when I was uh, just out of high school. And well, thank um, you for your service. Oh, well, thank you for your service. Thank uh, you. Um, but uh, my decision to go in the Air Force was because I was fascinated with jets. You know, I wanted to, to work with jets in some way, but then I ended up being stationed at a nuclear missile base. For, for me, working with nukes and, or, you know, being around nukes and having that threat of nuclear war, it's, it's hard to explain to somebody who doesn't really understand that. How, how would you put it into words of what that feels like to live under that threat? I think I think what it does is it makes it real. It makes what you see on the news real when you come to that, because so much even even back then when there was only three channels on TV that went off at night, you know, with the test pattern, uh, there was still you know the nightly news. Everybody watched Walter Cronkite or you know Chet and David, you know, but when you when you're watching it and you hear more than just opinions. Everybody has opinions. Everybody, people always have opinion on news. But when, you, when you're living through it and you're close enough to it to, in your case, to actually look and see, that's a nuke. <laughs> there it is. That's real. That makes it real. My case, you know, they, well, we have some grainy pictures of maybe, might be missiles in Cuba. And, and it was more, it was real to me because my parents were talking about it in real time and real, um, we're gonna have to do this, we're gonna have to do that. You know, real planning, family planning issues were going on, it wasn't just the news. So I think making it real when, you live in, when you're living through it, as opposed to reading about it or just watching it on TV. Yeah, yeah. And you had a, an even more real experience during your time in Vietnam, uh, I'm sure. Yeah, second second battalion, twenty six Marines. Um, I joined the outfit right after they came out of Quezon. I missed Quezon. That was uh, not something I I care about missing. Um, I think it's interesting. I have people sometimes go, well, "I never went to Vietnam. I'm, you know, I wonder what what was it like." And I go, "You didn't miss anything. <laughs> it was um, it was moments of sheer terror surrounded by boredom. You know, when you're burning you're burning latrines." Uh, with diesel smoke pouring off of them, you don't feel very um, Rambo-ish. The one hard and fast rule of the military is hurry up and wait. That's the thing Absolutely. they ingrain into you, is Absolutely. that you, you always rush to be prepared, and you always have to be prepared, and then you wait for something to happen and so that you can react to it. Uh, yeah. So what you're, what you're talking about is exactly that. And what you were waiting for was that moment of sheer terror and the opportunity to hope that you can make it through that. Is that about right? That absolutely, that's absolutely it. And, and the other thing is um, the, the total, you totally dedicated, when you're in combat outfit, for instance, we, we did um, an assault on a hill and in Vietnam, all the hills had numbers and I can't even remember the number of the hill. Um, because there were so many of them, but we, we climbed, we went up, we, we had some actions, we had some contact with the enemy and we got to the top of the hill and there was no water anywhere. We were running out of water. It was supposed to be a, a quick uh, assault. We hit the rice paddies and helicopters and then we assaulted up the hills. We ended up at hills in, in, in thick jungle with no water. So <laughs> they said, we're gonna blow uh, an LZ. Great. I'm going to blow, blow a bunch of trees up and open an area so a helicopter can bring in supplies. Um, and, you know, so many people talk about ex the expertise, you know, your training for an expertise. 
But then you you end up in a situation like that. You just get a bunch of guys. You get as much C4 as you can. You sort of put around a bunch of trees, run some blast caps, and you blow up the forest. We did all that, and they they bring in a helicopter, and they drop the pallet um, through the trees, and they, they drop it on the ground. And we all run to the pallet. We open it up, expecting to find sea rations or water or something. And what they sent us was a whole pallet of grape juice. So, so we had all the grape juice you could ever want right there on the mountain. We just called it the purple death because it went right through you. Oh, that's, yeah. that's, that's combat. <laughs> uh, you know what? There, there was another thing. There was another thing that went through my mind as you were telling me that story. And it's, it's um, basically this, what we were talking about the threat of nuclear war that was still present. And even a a little bit more uh, possible, the possibility of it was greater at that time because of the conflict in Vietnam. Um, But how much time did you think about or worry about nukes flying over overhead from Soviet Union to the US and vice versa? while you were, you know, armpit deep in mud and trying to survive with bullets whizzing by you? You know, not a bit. Um, when, you're, when, you're, when, you're, when you're hiking through, you know, you got 90 pounds of gear on your back um, and you're hiking through rice paddy water, then your feet are getting stuck into the, into the bottom of the rice paddy. You don't, you don't think about anything beyond immediate survival. Who's the guy on your left, the guy on your right? Um, which direction you're going? You know, is this a, a, a bad area? Is there a booby trap? Is there something that's gonna stick me in the leg? Uh, you know, um, you have so much of that you're worrying about your immediate mind. You don't have time to visualize other stuff. Um, and that was, that was the truth. When you're when you're in a situation like that, you you just don't have the time or the energy to think about broader issues. You know, people a lot of times will go, "Well, there's you know the the what about the Vietnam? Was it was it good? Was it bad?" Um, when you're there, you didn't think about that. You thought about survival. You're talking about taking care of the guys around you. And other than that, there was nothing else that's important. I've heard other other combat veterans say similar things to that. I've also heard people say that you're, you're never more alive than when you're facing death head on. Like you, every, every sense is alert. Every sense is heightened and you are 100% focused on survival and living through the next few minutes or a few hours or however long that immediate conflict is right there. And that is like the height of being alive. Is that, do you, do you feel that way too? It, 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 it is, it is, except you're, it's strange. You don't really feel, um, you don't feel fear. When you're when you're in a firefight or you're you're you know assaulting in a, a bunker or things like that, because you're too busy, all your senses are cranking, but you're too busy to be afraid. Uh, and the truth is, if you think about it, you're not gonna you're not gonna move. You're not gonna stick your head up and shoot at anybody. The people are shooting at you. What's wrong with you? Like, so you you work. You're almost working on just automation. You're working on training. You're working on following a leader. You're 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 almost on automatic when you're in that situation. One thing I did want to ask you about your books in relation to your combat experience is how um, how how much of that experience translates into your books. Uh, almost none of the experience, uh, in the sense that um, that the books are kind of on their their own thing, but what what drives me part of what drives me is that combat experience is is saying well i experienced this combat this way what would this person do how would they handle their combat experience so it is a focus of interest for me 
So it does, it shows up obviously as I write military adventure. So in my sci-fi, there's always gonna be military, there's gonna be combat on different levels. The same with the ancient history writing. So for me, it's like, I look at my combat experience and, I, and the combat experience of people that were around me. And I go, how did we survive it? What, did, what were we thinking? What were we feeling? So it's kind of like testing yourself to put it into science fiction realm and go, well, here's a safe realm. You can really explore what the person was going through and what happened. So that's that's about as close as to real combat as you're, you know, you get, you're not going to, you know, I don't have 14 years of, I'd have, I'd have run, if I was you know, only using my experience, I'd have run out of experiences long ago on my, my first or second book. It's it's probably my point of view that, that makes it from the combat experience that makes it into the actual books is, is the ability to to function under high stress situation. Has it helped you to have that experience to be able to write about it? I've actually thought about that and I don't know because there are some terrific military writers out there and sci-fi writers that never never served in the military or were ever really in a high stress situation like that. So, That's I mean, true. Yeah, I, you know, I agree with that. Police officers, military, um, you know, those, some of those people get into writing, you know, that sort of adventure books, but a lot of people don't. They just have a natural flair for it. But I bet you will find that those writers who do write well about it interview many veterans and police officers who have been through those type of experiences. I, th- I think the best. I think the best ones do. I think you're absolutely right about that. Yeah, it, it would be almost impossible to make that stuff up without talking with people who've been through it, I think. Now, how how difficult is it for you to kill off a main character or an important character in a story? Do you get really attached to these characters? I had um, the actual, my warlock character was actually introduced in the third book of the Galactic Council Realm series. Uh, and she had a team, and it was this one character I really liked. She was kind of a smart aleck and, and uh, um, didn't take any gruff off of people. And she was, but she was uh, real intelligent. She just was, and there was a backstory on her growing up poor, well, growing up middle class, but then her father getting hurt and her, you know, their, their social standing falling and her, you know, being, having to, to go to work time at night and then you know uh, gang guys picking on her and all that so the backstory on her was was pretty intensive and then uh, she she got killed in a in a in a a corridor on a spaceship and I was a mess I was a mess for two days after that I couldn't believe I actually killed her off I I I felt because I knew her I knew her I knew her backstory I knew her from when she was a little girl in my head you know that's interesting. So the that, that the uh, the death of that character was unexpected even to you until you wrote it. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. It was not planned at all. It just was. There was an explosion, and she was the she was the high right side. So her job was actually in a corridor was to crawl along the uh, kind of on the ceiling. You have to you have to understand that. A, a corridor assault team with two big guys, two big people on the bottom, and then the commander or the captain, whatever. And then there's two people that have like suction cups on there and they train upside down and they kind of crawl along the ceiling of a corridor. And when you think about it, if you wanted to clear a corridor, if you try to do it from one location, you got a problem because corridors on a spaceship will have vents and things that people can shoot at you through from above. So to me, a corridor assault team would be two on the ground and two up in the air. And they would crawl, move along slowly down the corridor, sealing uh, hatches as they go. And of course, shooting down the corridor from four or five, from five different angles. So that's, that's where she was uh, one of the high, high right side of uh, my corridor assault team. And uh, she got blown off the ceiling. And that was, man, that hurt. 
I, I think the, a lot of authors feel that way. It's not easy to kill off a character that you put so much time and and energy into developing. And then, yeah, you, you, like you say, you get to know that character as if it was a real person. Yeah, That's interesting. Especially you write you write their backstory. So and 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 the other things I think some people that don't write miss is an author needs to know more about a character than goes into books. You 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 have to have a sense of things that you're not writing. You don't put everything in a book. If you put everything in a book, it's boring. Right? The the, the small foibles, the little things, the little stuff about them. You just don't put it in a book because it's it's a waste of time. It's not information a reader needs. They're going to build their own. They're going to build their own view of the characters they read the book. But the author, from the author's point of view, every character I put in there, even if it's a minor character with a walk through, that character to my head has a backstory. That character has you know, the married, not married, lives close, lives far, is near home, not you know. It's good guy, bad guy basically is is a cheat, is is uh, an honest person basically in a bad situation. So yeah, it it's it's when you kill one off, especially when you've spent uh, quite a bit of time with it, it hurts. Do you ever put characters in your stories that are based on real people in that you know in real life? In my um, most people in my sci-fi books are composite. A lot of compositive people I've met, the story I've, stories I've heard. Um, in my historical fiction series, the there are quite a few people that were really alive and really did stuff. Now, knock on wood, in, in the ancient history, there's not a lot of detail in their lives. You know, here's a name, here's what they, here's their name, here's how long they lived, and and they did maybe one or two things. It, it leaves the whole thing a blank slate. So that's, those people, some are real, but you always invent characters to go in, but most of them are composite uh, to make them interesting. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. <clears throat> most people's lives are relatively boring um, with uh, moments of sheer terror or frustration <laughs> or whatever it is they're dealing with, right? Exactly, exactly. The, the last final question I want to ask you about um, having a career as a writer. Uh, and this is an important question. You usually ask people about, um, how, you know, what's, what are the best steps to find a publisher? What are the most important steps to starting a story? And, uh, you know, I, I've, I've had people answer those questions in relatively similar ways, but one thing I've never asked a writer who's been doing it for some time and built a business off of it how do you build an audience? What are the best steps to take to get your name out there? I, I built my audience really on Amazon and Facebook. Um, and, you know, if you, you, if you go my Galactic Council Realm Facebook page is really my book page of all my books. Uh, and I've got 1,524 people there that, um, that follow that page. So if I put a post up, I get good response. And if I, I would say I announce new books there when I do it, or if I get like, I just got a website. I didn't have a website before because I'm kind of waiting till I had a, um, a big enough backlist that I thought I could make it worth my while to have a pay for somebody to build a website. So I've got a website now. Oh, well, please tell, tell us what the website is. Oh, it's jcliftonslater.com. Okay, good. Yeah, I'm, I'm always uh, up for guests on the podcast to, you know, tell people how to find them on social media, uh, website addresses, that kind of stuff. So by all means, what's your Amazon book, uh, book page or Amazon author page? Do you, do you have an author page? Um, Amazon J. Clifton Slater. And the uh, Facebook page that you mentioned? It's Galactic Council Realm at Facebook, Galactic Council Realm. Okay, great. So it, 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 the, the hard part about building an audience is not just building an audience, but finding readers. Um, and that starts with the story. You know, if you're not telling a good story, um, if you haven't studied a little bit, if you haven't read a lot, 
then your story may not be as strong as it needs to be. Uh, but other than that, it's, it's doing it. And that's the hard part. I talk to a lot of people that say, I want to write a book. And I go, go write one. And they go, I have one thing. Something is not going to make it happen. You have to do it. Yeah. And that's it's like, and that's, are you a star Wars fan? I star Wars. Yeah. So one of the, one of the best quotes out of that entire franchise is when Yoda says to Luke, uh, I think it was in Empire Strikes Back. He tells him, do or do not, there is no try. Yes. That's, that's exactly it, man. It. That's <laughs> it. But it, it is, there's probably a million. I, I belong to a number of, of writer Facebook groups. And invariably, there's always a lot. And most, most people have never written. They want to write. They're learning about it. Um, and sometimes you can overlearn. I mean, I have rolled out my, I started with the book. I did my covers myself. Um, Amazon has a, a wonderful thing where you can put a cover, you can, you can put a book up and not spend a dime on it. They've got cover creator, you can create a cover in their thing. Uh, you can, they've got a format system, they can they'll show you how to format your ebook. And you can write the book and format it, put a cover on it for no money. So you, you, I started like that just as an experiment. I'll put a book up. So I did. And it sold. And I took that money and I rolled it into better covers. And then I rolled it into advertising. And then I rolled it into others. And I take classes on advertising, um, especially on Amazon, classes on advertising on Facebook. Because the industry is changing so fast that if you want to write books, writing books is not enough. And that's probably the hardest part is to tell people is writing books is not enough. I think it's Patterson, James Patterson, that when he started, took his own money. He had a publisher, but he took his own money and he took out full page ads in one of the major newspapers in New York. It must have cost him $10,000 a shot at that. But he did it. And what happened was he got to be famous before his books really started selling. James, a new book with James Patterson's coming out. Well, who was James Patterson? He was a guy that ran ads and wrote a book. And then he started writing more. Now James Patterson is, is world famous. That is a great story right there. A great little anecdote. Um, so basically take control of your own marketing and don't leave it up to somebody else to, to tell people about you. Yeah. The, 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 probably the other lesson there is this. If you do it yourself, nobody can ever cheat you nobody can, or lie to you. Somebody could say, well, I'm doing the work for you. I just trust me. I'm doing the work. You know, hold on a minute. I used to do it myself. And I know this is how it needs to be. Show me a different way to do it. That's fine. But don't, don't tell me you're doing it when it's not being done. Because unfortunately, especially around, there's the peripherals around your indie authors. There's a lot of charlatans. And that's always an issue of people that promise you the, the, the sun and the moon, the stars, and they don't deliver. But if you've done the work yourself, before you hire somebody, you know what they should be doing for you. That's a good point. One, uh, one thing that a lot of, or one, one complaint I hear from people who do a lot of self-promotion is that they get flack uh, and they actually get a lot of hate from people calling them sellouts. What, what would you say to people, not not the people who are name calling, because those people are irrelevant. <laughs> those, those people are not important. But what would you say to an author or an artist or somebody, who, a creative person who's really trying to self-promote and get their name out there that runs up against a, a, a group of these jackals that are just trying to beat them down i would say this you cannot eat pay bills by doing things for free you you know if you're an artist and I, i'm an artist i'm a writer if you're an artist or you do drawings or you write poetry whatever your art is if you're a podcaster andrew hall you're you should be paid you should be able to monetize what you're doing and if getting people to buy your product or listen to your product 
means you need to sometimes do a podcast and talk about yourself, even if you're not comfortable doing it sometimes, then doing it because doing free stuff for people, giving away your art is not going to pay the bills. And how can you maintain uh, being an artist if you're not getting paid? And, and this is the other thing about that. Um, I'm an indie, so I do everything myself. I mean, I run my I run my business and my business is in an inter international business. I have readers from around the world. Um, you know, I have, I get emails from Africa and from Australia and I, you know, I communicate with people there that are my readers. So I want to know when the next book coming out. That's cool. That's really Yeah, good. it is. So, well, and so you you're such a prolific author that I, I'm sure you've built up an expectation within your audience that they're looking forward to seeing something within the next six months or within the next year or so three months three months wow i try to do a book every three months yeah you have the most spoiled readers in the world i believe well but remember this is what i do this is all i do that's true um i used to be a gamer i used to love my xbox 360 um man skyrim and uh fallout the fallout series oh. i love i love the fallout games uh, well, the first two, the first two I was really fond of, but after that, I just kind of, kind of lost interest in it. Yeah. Well, the last one I played was Fallout New Vegas. And of course, living on the other side of Black Mountain, I can look out my window and see where the, um, where the monsters are near any place up there on top cool of Black Mountain that, from the game. <laughs> I tried I was, Fallout Vegas, but, or New Vegas, but didn't work out for me. My computer wouldn't, um, my computer oh. graphics card wouldn't just, you know, support it. What, um, what I loved was my wife and I were driving to a wedding in California and we had never driven to California down 15 heading South. Cause when we moved here, we came in from the other direction and, and I had just finished playing. I've been playing fallout New Vegas and we're driving down 15. I look over on the right and there's this little, there's an old, turns out it used to be a restaurant, small restaurant, roadside restaurant with a gas pump. And I said, oh, in, this, in the books, I mean, in the games, that's a police station and there's zombies up over the hill. And I looked to my left and there's this hazy, sandy area, the expanse that goes out. And I said, oh yeah, and there's giant ants over there. My wife said, how old are you? <laughs> That's so cool. That's a great story right there, man. That's going in. <laughs> I hope you're. I hope you're not a closet gamer and you want to keep that under wraps because that's no, going no, in. I had, it's in my. It's it's in my bio. My the trouble is when I started writing the books, I had to. I actually gave away my Xbox because if I hadn't, I'd. It it was there tempting me. Because if I started playing again, I would probably never write another book because I really really enjoyed it. If you have another book coming out in a couple of months. Well, the book I'm working on is called Rome's Tribune. In 259 BC, 258 BC, the Elysian got trapped in South Sicily. They believed that the Carthaginian army was up at Palermo. They, and they thought it was an undersized army. So they were running around in the South with the Legion. They ended up they were wrong. Their intelligence completely wrong. They actually ended up trapped in a valley uh, surrounded by the entire uh, Carthage army at the time on Sicily. And they were going to get decimated, just decimated. Well, this young tribune named Marcus Flama uh, took 300 volunteers and moved them to a hill a little bit off the battlefield, but close to the Carthage commander. And because he was so, they were so close, the Carthaginians pulled back on the attack on the main legion because they had to remove these 300. Uh, because of that, the legion was able to escape. All 300 legions there died, except Marcus, who somehow miraculously survived. Well, in my head, I'm thinking, where did he get the idea to take 300 legionaries? Well, what is the, what is the perfect 300 was what? The Spartans at Thermopylae. So I had to go back and do a lot of research in Thermopylae because in the books, uh, Marcus and my main character, Alario, 
are talking and Marcus is actually reading a synopsis of the battle at Thermopylae. And that's the first part of the book. When does that book come out? I'm shooting for late December, early January. Oh, we'll get you back on once, once you get that book. Um, That'd be great. Out, out to publish. And thank you for joining me on Dead Hand Radio. And uh, I look forward to talking to you again in the future. Thank you so much, Andrew. I appreciate it. Thank you.